0: Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business.
1: Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm good. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. How are you? Great. Well, typically on the Music Buzz podcast, we talk to musicians. Sometimes we don't. And today is one of those days we don't, but super excited to welcome our guest, Doug Herzog. Doug is a legendary American television executive. He was formerly the president of Viacom Music and Entertainment Group, where he oversaw MTV, VH1, Logo, Comedy Central, Palladia, TV Land, and Spike. His career began at CNN in 1981, became a segment producer of Entertainment Tonight in 1983, and his Viacom career began in 1984 when he joined MTV. During his term, At Viacom, he started MTV News as a director, creating the network's influential news department, and eventually rising to president of MTV Productions, overseeing all the channel's original programming. Developed and supervised many of the brand's most enduring and groundbreaking franchises, which include Real World, Unplugged, Road Rules, as well as the network's signature events, uh, the movie awards, and the annual MTV Video Music Awards. So without further ado, please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Doug Herzog. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: That's an awfully lengthy introduction.
1: I always do that. That way, you know, if you got to get off really fast or you get a call you'd rather take, you know, we've already covered <laughs>
0: That's right. <We've> I always <laughs> describe myself as, you know, former TV executive and cable weasel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I shouldn't let you do it this time.
2: <laughs> well, it's an honor to talk to you today, man. I mean, What an incredible legacy that we just heard Andy talk about there that you've helped create and guide and uh, in searching for a parallel to uh, cultural significance of the advent of MTV. I mean, I I was kind of just thinking about that yesterday. And the only thing that comes to mind to me is the Beatles first appearance on Ed Sullivan. When you know, seventy-three million people watched that, and the very next day, thousands of kids were bugging their mom and dad for a guitar or a drum set. And then every other English combo that knew four chords rode their coattails over here with the British Invasion. It changed music back then. And then in the early '80s, well, I guess August first, nineteen eighty-one, was the first date of MTV. But it took maybe a few years for it. I mean, and I kind of remember that very first thing when the Buggles thing a video killed the radio star mm-hmm. i remember that but it was maybe a few years later when it really took full effect and changed our culture i mean tell me how you worked your way into that
0: yeah, you're right about obviously you know the beatles that was like a lightning bolt right uh, yeah. It struck, yeah, yeah, yeah it struck the uh, the planet you know MTV's rise you know it wasn't a single moment it was you know it right. kind of rose over time but you know, the moment I got there, which was about three years in, which was the summer of 1984, uh, I had gotten hired to run the, the uh, to, to start the news uh, department. I had been working in entertainment tonight, booking music stories for them. And that's how I came to the attention of MTV. But the summer of 1984 was, I believe, like the really the peak of that first era of MTV, the music, mm, the sure. actual music video era. Mm. So this was the summer of, uh, Prince's Purple Rain, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, yep. uh, the Jackson's Victory Tour. And of course, you know, Michael Jackson's Thriller album, uh, Madonna. You know, I refer to the four of them. It's like the the Mount Rushmore of music videos. Mm-hmm. No question. And, yeah. and I got there. They had, you know, MTV had just been on the cover of Time magazine. And that was really the apex and the peak. And that's when people, you know, were really discovering music, you know, through MTV and through music videos. Just after that, probably a year, maybe more like a year and a half later, the novelty of just watching music videos, it started to wane a little bit. And that's when the folks who were running MTV decided we needed to make actual TV shows. And, and I was the guy charged with making those TV shows, which at the time was heresy. I mean, people were like, this mm-hmm. isn't rock and roll. What are you doing? We're not supposed to be like TV. We're not supposed to make TV shows. What? We're going to make a game show. That's crazy. But that's what we did. And that, of course, you know, set the, what I like to call MTV 2.0, um, mm. or Mach 2 into, uh, into motion. And I think it's hard for people, um, particularly young people to understand what MTV meant to young people like us. We were young back then. At right. that time, MTV was like, TikTok, YouTube, Spotify, Twitter, all rolled in together, all rolled into one. And that's where everybody went. It was kind of a a revelation for young people at the time. It was what every young person watched. Absolutely. No question.
1: No question. I've got a question. So, and, and, and I read some in the intro. So in 1981, you'd started at CNN. And obviously you mentioned that MTV launched in 1981 as well. So, were your sites kind of on MTV, or did they come to you after a few years? Well,
0: yeah, what, I you know, I, I'll tell you a funny story. I uh, I graduated college. Uh, I actually graduated a little early, but my my class uh, graduated in the spring of '81. And the summer before, I had written a letter to Mike Nesmith. Who I had read yeah. in Billboard had started Pop Clips, this show, which were, which was, he was making music videos. I wrote him this letter saying how I thought music and video was the future. And I wanted to intern there. And could he please get in touch with me? I used to handwrite everything out bef- because I couldn't type. I still can't type. And this, this was the days of manual typewriters and whiteout. By the way, Mike Nesmith's mother invented, invented whiteout. whiteout. Oh, That's yeah, right. She did. And, yep. and I still, I have that letter handwritten in a school from college. He never he never got back to me, but I was clearly interested in music and television. When I went to CNN, I was working on a a D-list celebrity talk show. You got to remember this was 1981. Nobody had cable. Nobody knew who Ted Turner was. Everybody thought 24 hour news was a crazy idea. It was a startup. People just didn't call it that. Mm. But I would book music guests on this little show that we were producing every night at 10 o'clock in Los Angeles that nobody was watching and then i got a gig at entertainment tonight uh doing the same thing but obviously on a slightly bigger platform entertainment tonight was just a couple of years in and my big claim to fame was i booked uh, the first national interview with bruce springsteen um, oh, wow. uh, on his born the usa tour and i kind of scooped mtv uh we were able to uh run our interview two weeks before theirs so mm-hmm. i think that's how i came to the attention of the the folks who are running into you, I was like, "Who's that guy?" And maybe yeah. he should work for us—the <laughs> guy nice. to beat us to the punch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, Dane actually plays drums on the on the new tune with Springsteen and Mellencamp.
0: Oh wow! Well, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I got I got a bunch of Mellencamp stories, but I don't want to get you fired. <laughs> okay thanks i appreciate that thanks, i got a, I got we'll a bunch it. of we're, of we're
2: starting a new record next monday
0: so yeah yeah, yeah i don't want i, 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 don't I don't need wanna to be to there
2: it. for a few more weeks i anyway. saw
0: him in uh <laughs> i saw him perform in uh, september at farm Aid, uh up in uh, connecticut yeah. and he just did it with a little like two or yeah. three piece combo and it was he was great though he did a great little set yeah it's been 26 years with john so wow good for you man yep
1: so entertainment tonight you had springsteen and uh you go into mtv world so obviously you mentioned all the all the acts in the 80s that were that were huge at that time in 84 but one thing i was thinking about in in talking to you today because around that time i don't know a lot of the you know when kiss came in and took their makeup off and if you look at some of those you know quite a lot of them pretty awful videos from bands that were big in the 60s and 70s that were really revived by mtv i guess
0: well, the, you know, the, I think the biggest... Well, there were a bunch of them. I mean, you know, Steve Winwood had an MTD hit. Right. Um, Rod Stewart. Kinks, Come Dancing. Uh, Kinks, Come Dancing, right? Uh, in their Aristot uh, era. Um, you know, Rod Stewart uh, was uh, yeah. a, a big star for uh, for MTD. But I think that, you know, the the biggest band, the band that MTD really brought back, or can, at least can take credit for helping to, to truly bring back, is Aerosmith. And yeah. you know, when Aerosmith, you know, they were... They were pretty strung out uh, at that point. Uh, They were on the skids to a certain degree. And, you know, when Rick Rubin and and Russell Simmons had that idea to pair them with Run DMC, uh, I don't think the band thought much of it, but it really rejuvenated their career and then they went and made a bunch of great records and Mm -hmm. great videos and big tours and they became one of the biggest fans in the world after really being counted out there uh, they were counted out they were terrible i saw them live during
2: the done with mirrors tour which is about 83 maybe or four it was right before the permanent vacation was the comeback record was it not right Mm -hmm. they had all those hits that's right that's right But yeah those guys were it was painful to see that because they weren't in very good shape. I, I can
0: remember being—I can remember being in the MTV newsroom. You know, you know, we were all fans of Aerosmith, and sure. we were happy to see them. I remember looking at the footage of you know the Run DMC footage when it came in because it was a big deal. Uh, and you know, it, it, you know, I think people
3: though were generally more excited about Run DMC than Aerosmith.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and as it turned out, it was
3: great for both of them. I met the band um, right after they came back into focus and got fit when uh Kladner and i went out to see them at rehearsal in boston for the get a grip project and that was a treat you know seeing them in rehearsal watching them like a garage band it's a bit like the anthology beetle tapes it was just great to see them in the formative stage of doing what you would eventually hear when they got together with fairbairn
0: yeah they were they were they were a great band and that was a great run for them and uh, they made the most of it uh and you know they were great to work with you know we worked pretty closely with them we did you know they were they were, fr- they, were, they were friends of the MTV family and, um, you know, appeared on a lot of the award shows and sure. uh, et cetera and promotions and things like that. And, and always,
3: always great to work with.
1: Yeah. Nice guys. Yeah. Good guys. Well, it's interesting, too, because as I'm listening to you guys talk and, and thinking about this, it's, you know, like everybody won during that time. I mean, like Hugh did the record covers for uh, White Snake's 1987 album, Aerosmith, Get a Grip. Bon Jovi, New Jersey, Rush, Hold Your Fire, all of those were in that pocket in time where, and I'm just using that as one example where, you know, MTV played not just a role to, to benefit the bands and themselves. But all the outliers of, you know, people that are doing graphic design and people at radio and people. Those were those were
0: good times. I I mean, everybody was winning. Right. The the, the record companies were selling records. The the bands were, you know, sort of touring and selling out. Uh, People were making videos. The video business was, you know, you know, rolling. And Mm -hmm. it was it was a flush time. Uh, Everything was good uh, in the music business. I think back then, I think that's how most of us who were in it back then would look at it.
3: Yeah, you mean before we started feeding off the carcass of what used to be the music business?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, everything. You know, I mean, I. You know, I've watched the industry that I grew up in, which is the cable television industry, change dramatically. Um yeah. You know, I, my podcast is basically about the. You know, it's going to be this sort of like. Goofy oral history of a uh, of basic cable, you know, mm-hmm. which there's a beginning, a middle, and there's about to be an end. I mean, it's going away. You know, the streamers yeah. are about to eat them whole. So, look, nothing yeah. is forever. Everything changes. The music's still here. That's the important thing. Yeah, I, yeah. Sometimes I bemoan the fact that I spent, uh, you know, thousands of hours of my life searching for records and record bins, and now it's all in my back pocket. Uh, but uh, but so it is, and that's that's probably a good thing too. Right. But going back to that era, you know, you, you mentioned those bands. Those those were the A-list bands. But, you know, they ushered in an era of, you know, hard rock and hair metal, which (laughs) MTV really, you know, embraced. Mm -hmm. And um, it was it was an interesting time. Those were some interesting bands. Not all of them, I I think, stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can tell you. They were fun to work with. I used to I used to look at the heavy metal bands as I would say professional wrestlers. You know, the fans (laughs) thought they were the greatest athletes in the world. That's great. Um, They understood it was was show business and they came to and they came to play. And so I always I always appreciated that about that, you know, because we were making TV at the end of the day. At the end of the day, we were in the TV business at MTV and the metal bands were good TV. Oh, yeah. So who comes to mind in that? Oh, my God, there's, you know, I mean, you, well, you mentioned Whitesnake, but, you know, there's, you know, there's Poison and Motley Crue and Rat yeah. and Dockin And, mm-hmm. uh, oh, my God, I mean, the, the list just goes on and on and on right. and on. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them were good, some of them not yeah. so much. There are a couple of great songs in there. There are a couple mm-hmm. of really horrible songs and, and videos that, you know, we probably shouldn't be showing anymore. Right. But uh, it was a time <laughs> and they were and it was a stark. Um, uh, difference from the grunge bands that kind of came, you know, right behind them, who honestly weren't that much fun, didn't really like the idea of TV, and didn't really play along that much with MTV. Now that being said, they were great right. bands and great music, but they sort of they sort of railed against MTV a little bit.
1: Yeah. So yeah. the MTV news thing. So I mean, I look back at that very fondly because I was always, you know, as all of us were, you know, yeah, listen to people that. and reading rock magazines and stuff, but. MTV News was like, you know, I got used to watching Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite every night because my parents watched it. But MTV was like, oh, this is my news. You know, this, sure. this is. The it, news yeah, I one. mean,
0: it, yeah, Kurt Loder was the was the Walter Cronkite of, uh, yeah. you know, sort Indeed. of popular music. Look, you know, <clears throat> I got there. And when I got there, uh, what was happening was basically there were two or three people who were kind of rewriting billboard stories and the VJs, the original VJs, Mark Goodman, Martha Quinn, JJ Jackson, Alan Hunter, you know, um, they would, they would read the stories and we decided along the way, well, a couple things happened. First, we were, you know, trying to get interviews with big stars and, and there became a point where the biggest stars like the Bonos and the, the. The Springsteens didn't want to sit with the VJs because they didn't necessarily have the credibility they were looking for. Right. So, you know, there was a, you know, I had a couple of ex writers in that writer's room, and I hired a, a friend named uh, who I went to college with, uh, named Linda Corradina, who ended up running MTV News. And we decided, well, maybe we should go get Kurt Loader and establish separate news personalities from the mm-hmm. VJs. And that's what we did. And, and Kurt was the, you know, sort of the first big one. And, uh, and he was a guy, you know, who had come straight from Rolling Stone that Bruce wanted to sit with and Bono wanted to sit with and Prince would sit with, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, where they really, we couldn't really get them to do that with the VJs. And, and that was a, that was a big turning point. I would say the turning point really was at Live Aid um, where we did a lot of behind the scenes news coverage while the VJs were sort of up on the stage doing their thing. And that's when the tide sort of, formally turned you know hmm. in favor of the mtv news team and, and their correspondence you know versus having the vjs do it
1: sure now were you at live aid personally
0: i was yeah i was running around backstage you can you can go on youtube and you can you can see my arm coming in and out. i interviewed all the people that the vjs you know uh or, or i should say the vjs i interviewed all the people that the mtv executives thought the vjs shouldn't be seen with so there's, cool. I'm interviewing like Dionne Warwick. I'm interviewing Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. Uh, I, I actually, well, I, also, I also interviewed Grace, Grace Slick, actually speaking of another artist who, uh, you know, a, a vintage artist and legacy artist who MTV yeah. helped reinvent.
2: No question. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So that's interesting. Did did you run into Dylan and Keith and Ronnie? That, well, I I, 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 I will that? tell you <laughs> what was
0: going on there, man. I I w- I, I, I have some wow. photos. I was back in the artist. You know, things security began to really <laughs> break down near the end. So I was back in the artist compound right before Dylan went on, and uh, I have a photo of Phil Collins keith richards and ronnie wood standing like just outside you know one of those trailers together um as keith and uh and ronnie were getting ready to go on with dylan i also it had broken down to the uh, point where I got myself and my camera crew on the stage uh, for the final number, the big uh, Lionel Richie led We Are the World finale. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, wow. this guy who uh, uh, I work with, uh, the legendary Joe Davola, who was an MTV producer, um, first thing he does is, and you can see this, it's an MTV documentary. He taps me on the shoulder and he says, point the camera, follow me with the camera. And he goes out on stage during the finale, and he puts his arms around John Taylor and another guy from Duran Duran, and starts yeah. singing "We Are the World." So, so that's great. And then the song ends, and I rush to the center of the stage with the camera crew, and I bum rush Lionel Richie. Uh, I like tap him on the shoulder. He's literally just finished, like he just won the Super Bowl or something. And, oh, sure. and and I'm like, you know, and instead of like saying, "Hey, you go to Disneyland," I go, "How do you feel?" And you can kind of see him kind of recoil. I'm right in his face. And, <laughs> And uh, he answers. <laughs> that's also that's also on uh, that's on YouTube somewhere as well. Oh, but that yeah. was a, That was a great hot day in Philadelphia. And uh, it, was, wow. uh, it was it was it, it was, was, was definitely great. something I'll never forget. How did he
3: feel? <laughs> well, he was actually, you know,
0: if you watch him, he, he, he uh, you know, very poised and answers the question and, you know, talked about how much money they raised and gave a figure. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, the other the other thing, you, you can actually catch a glimpse of me and I'm wearing, like at the time, what were very fashionable, those Tom Cruise, Risky Business Ray-Bans. Right. Yeah. It's of course. It's, nice. a, it's 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. I have man. My, my my Ray-Bans on. It was the 80s. I don't know. Hey, good like, for you. Yeah. Man. People did oh, yeah. that stuff. That's well, cool. and I remember
2: Phil Collins played. He he did a double gig that he day. Played, right? He took
0: the uh, Concord over took in the, the middle Concord. of the show. Yeah, he pl- he, played he played that played with he, Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah, he played that ill-fated Zeppelin set. Ooh, yeah, that was that was rough. So I remember the. So here's what I remember about the Zeppelin set. I. I was I was on stage watching. I couldn't bring the camera crew up, but I I was standing on stage watching because it was going to be Led Zeppelin, and right behind me are Tom Petty and Stan Lynch, and they are giddy as schoolboys at the prospect of seeing Led Zeppelin. They're just so excited, and um, <laughs> so the, so then the band starts and it's not good. And I kind of turn around, and they're kind of making faces like they just ate sour lemons. And then I turn back, <laughs> and it's getting worse. And then I turn back to them, and they're gone. <laughs> they <laughs> bailed.
3: <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: wow. It just wasn't. that never took. Never got, got off the ground, did it? No,
0: no, guys, started no. didn't, didn't 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 really work. One of those one of those things. Oh, well. yeah.
1: Now the other, you know, programming that music based in their uh, in their career unplugged. Where did that actually start? Because I've heard various bands kind of say, oh, we were we were the beginning of it. The Unplugged
0: origin goes back to a video music award show where John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora performed acoustic. Um, you know, they're
1: uh, I'm a cowboy. Uh, yeah, one and Dead or Alive. Oh, yeah. They wanted
0: they They performed um, acoustic and Two producers, a guy named Jim Burns, who has uh, sadly passed, and a guy named Bob Small uh, came to see us and they said, we think this is a show and we should, you know, and, you know, you can do a show with the big stars performing their songs acoustic. We're like, oh. That's a good idea and so we jumped into it over time bob and jim kind of got pushed to the side and the mtv producers sort of took hold uh, alex Colletti and, and joel Gallen, um who are two uh two of mtv's best music producers still out there doing this kind of stuff by the way and it, originally we couldn't really get big acts to do it nobody really wanted to do it so i you know it was originally we had a host in the beginning jules Shear. remember uh song oh jules, yeah that's jules, jules right the polar bears sure so jules yeah. jules hosted and we had a songwriter you know uh i think you know like the first i mean people like sid straw or the alarm i think you know a different in Tilbrook from squeeze you know it was not you know sort of big acts good music great performances but you know we you know we didn't have the big accident it's probably about six seven or eight shows in before we finally convinced don henley to do it and Um, henley was henley was the first big star to do it embrace it and then once henley did it and he did it great and it was a great big success um it might have been an album as well um then we started you know everybody started lining up and then by the way they lined up because you know these unplugged albums that the good ones the big ones were selling a bunch of records obviously obviously eric clapton right yeah that was huge. The most famous but you know yeah. there were a lot of cds put out most of them here in my play. dylan had one he dylan had one released rod stewart had one rod's, rod's? rod's yeah, was great dylan, yeah. yeah rod's was ronnie great with well. ronnie wood uh ronnie played was with there. Him a little bit yeah yeah. um yeah i mean i mean look we you know ultimately we had everybody elton john did an unplugged rem did an unplugged. i mean who didn't at in that era springsteen kind of did one <laughs> wasn't really unplugged but uh you know it was the unplugged became a really 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 big thing yeah
3: when i look back to uh steve bender's production of uh the 68 comeback special for elvis there was a, a nice segment in that too where the band sat in the round so i always think of that as also a much more prehistoric version of unplugged but it was certainly there i I,
0: yeah well absolutely and that was a big inspiration you know he was he was definitely you know that was name checked i think in the in the actual pitch Hmm. um one Uh, one interesting story mm. neil young did one uh neil's is great yeah well so 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 the story behind that is that was the second taping the first oh. taping was, was uh, at the old Ed Sullivan Theater in New York prior to Letterman moving in. Uh, mm-hmm. We uh, had booked it for Neil, and Neil was not in a good mood that night. And Ooh. he disappeared before the show into the streets of New York. He was in a bad mood. Alex Coletti, our producer, chased him down um he really didn't want to tape the net that night by the way there's a whole audience sitting there and a band and and uh, uh and, he ul- and he ultimately did it was absolutely it was one of the most painful musical experiences i ever had i mean really he would do songs three or four times in a row it was just brutal and so when it was over uh you know the his managers and neil and the record company said you know we want you to scrap this we will pay to set it up again in LA in a couple of weeks and try it again which we did and that
1: became the show. Mm. Uh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, cuz that album's fantastic. That album's fantastic. Yeah. yeah.
3: My brother bought me a ticket to Massey Hall in 1972 to see Neil and that was released as a CD later and I remember the moment when he asked the girl in the front row to stop taking pictures cuz the uh, it was throwing his timing off. You know, so he's, he was even scolding audience members yeah.
1: back. Well, what's interesting, too, is, in, and to your point earlier about alternative bands, the alternative bands really not only embraced MTV Unplugged, but it was a huge, um, oh, huge additive huge. in their career, Pearl Jams and Nirvanas. and Yeah, they, and they, they look,
0: those guys, by the way, you know, Nirvana, surprisingly, did almost everything we ever asked them to do. Mm. They, were, they, were extre- yeah, they were extremely accommodating. Pearl Jam in those days, not so much. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Eddie, you know, has probably evolved a fair amount from them, but they were, they were much more difficult. Nirvana Mm -hmm. showed up for everything, video music awards and Mm -hmm. unplugs. Nirvana played a set in the MTV studio early on. Um, Mm -hmm. and they were, you know, they were always on MTV news and sitting down for interviews and, you know, they were pretty great. They had a, they had a couple of patron saints within the building as did Pearl Jam, but, uh, but they were, they were, they were okay. Nirvana was great to work with, and an mm. unbelievable band.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, no question. Absolutely, I am always curious to know, as someone who has done art di- art direction on the twelve inch platform, and then the the subsequent CD platform, and now the two inch postage stamp bottom left corner of Apple. Uh, iTunes um, how much did artwork matter to you as a listener when you were in stores oh my god growing growing up it was everything
0: i mean that's that's all we had you know it, it was your what you imagined in your head listening to the radio or a record um, yeah. maybe maybe seeing them on tv maybe there was not a lot of music on tv as you know no nope. and the the albums were everything i can remember buying you know albums sometimes just for the cover um i was like well that looks cool and that sort of speaks to me a little bit maybe i'll like that and um yeah i mean and i still love album covers you know i still i still collect vinyl and and i will buy something sometimes just for the cover but uh, yeah no oh my god i yeah i mean album album artwork you know it's it, it was so important and so meaningful and so etched you know you know, like a song, if I see a particular album cover, it can bring me right back
3: to a particular time and place. Music is memory. It's, it becomes a soundtrack. Well, yeah. And I'm grateful for that fact that the artwork also managed to occupy a space in that same same concept. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Doug, what's,
2: what's
0: some of your favorite covers from back in the day? Oh, my God. Um, well, I guess it's funny. We, as I was telling this story, the the one cover I can remember, still one of my favorite albums. Uh, no judgment, please. But um, Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah Band, which is maybe the greatest disco record of all time. Mm. Uh, a guy named August Darnell. But, you know, I remember being in the record store and it had like this sort of jazzy deco cover and i was like that's really cool and interesting and i like the band's name like let's see what this is about you know mm. it's probably in sam goody and you know you know paramus new jersey um i uh know big reggae fan is you know as i told you so those those early i i I did not have uh the original catch a fire the one that was in the zippo lighter uh i got i I, I tracked that down later but uh -hmm. i did not have that original one but you know god i loved all i I love the the imagery of you know the reggae albums from the 70s particularly you know particularly some of the really crude stuff that would come straight out of uh you know you know sort of straight out of jamaica but um you know i was a big funk fan so uh-huh. uh you know i there, you know yeah. so i love that um that pink rufus you know with almost like the rolling stone type you know lips mm-hmm. and tongue oh yeah uh, yeah that's I, a great cover i, I also love the, <laughs> i also love the one after that which you know just you know the with all those beautiful pictures of uh chaka khan chaka. but yeah. um you know I, <clears throat> I i was telling the story of the day. i remember You know, so I'm sixty two. So I I think I was probably about trying to remember how old I was. I think I was about eleven or eleven or so. (laughs) But I can remember seeing the Exile on Main Street cover and thinking, Wow, that looks dark and dangerous and i want to hear uh-huh.
1: that
0: <laughs> you sure. know, i yeah. just can remember it's like did not it was not smiling back at you and it yeah. really was unlike anything you know that i'd ever seen before i can remember that and i was like i want to what's in there i want to i remember my sister had it. i was like i want to check that
2: out and it's a dark and grungy record
0: yeah you know yeah, exactly It's classic rock as it is it's 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 dark oh, it's the and greatest grungy. it's the greatest but you know I can, and also I, I you know one of the other ones you know, was uh, around same period was um, there's a riot going on. I had grown sly, up a, yeah. a big sly stone fan. You yeah, know, he had those great hits, those pop hits, those like sort of post Woodstock. Let's all get together and figure this out yeah. kind of stuff. And yeah. then all of a sudden, I, I like, well, there's this new album, and it you know, had that sort of like faux American flag thing. I was like, well, right. that's mm-hmm. sly, I want that. And then I can remember mm-hmm. putting it on and going, oh, this sounds different. This doesn't right. sound like the sly stone I thought I was getting. And um In a good way. Well, I was look, you know, I was a young guy. So it took me like you know, not I mean I love the songs and I love the music, but I remember trying to wrap my head
3: around it, you know? Mm. Yeah.
0: It wa- it wasn't everyday people. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. everyday people,
2: it wasn't everyday people. Yeah. Yeah. No,
3: no. How much did you bring this visual infatuation, this sensibility that you had? To your gig. Well, it's funny. I would, I would, I would
0: try every once in a while. I had those images in my head and they stuck with me. I can remember at one point, and I can't remember the name of it. And it didn't, we, we did a couple episodes. We tried to do sort of an R and B version of unplugged. I wanted to do more like of a stripped down R and B show, you know, of unplugged. But and I, but I remember very distinctly asking the uh, producers, I wanted I go, I wanted the vibe of the set to feel like the cover of, uh, Marvin's Marvin Gaye's, uh, after the dance. Um, I don't know if you remember that painting mm. on the cover of that, of that album, but a very, just by a very famous African-American artist. And I was like, that's the vibe I want. That's what we're going for. Like a little bit of that, you know, so there's Southern, you know, sort of chitlin circuit, you know, kind of vibe. Mm, and, yeah. um, we didn't quite get there either with the look or the show, but but I tried.
1: Yeah. From a fan perspective, um, we always like to talk about the live side and stuff with with our guests. As a as a fan, what was the first concert you went to? You bought a ticket to. Uh, you were pumped to go see.
0: So, a couple of quick stories about my concert-going experience. So, my mom was really into sort of black music and R and B music. Um, so she took uh, my, so so the first two concerts i saw i actually went with my mom three of the first four concerts i know this is not cool but three of the first four concerts i saw <laughs> i went with my mom so she took me to see al green at uh avery fisher hall in new york's like at the height of it is like 72 yeah mm. oh wow we went to the nanuet theater go round to see ray charles and gladys knight and the pips on a, oh, on a stage God. that rotated whoa in between there i went to my very first rock concert with my uh, with one of my friends at Madison square garden. And to this day, it's my least favorite rock concert of all time. And I hope I don't offend anybody here, but it was Jethro toll. Uh, it was the A uh, passion play tour and it was <laughs> God awful. And I knew it and I, I was 12 years old and I knew it.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, um, sorry if I offended anybody who loves the flute and the tights. Yeah. That record. Did, did they have a dancer on stage well, they showed a film. They showed a short. I remember this. They showed the yeah. film first, like a short film. They might have. I, I was so tuned out 20 minutes in and I was 12. <laughs> I was just like, this sucks. Well, <laughs>
2: it, it's, it's a hard listen. I mean, that record was like the same song for two sides. I, but I, you know, I
0: liked, you know, I loved Aqualung. and think as a break. They were, you know, those were, you know, but the what the concert that changed my <laughs> life. Also, courtesy of my mom. Long story short, I ended up in the front row. In october of 1975 in the kingston national stadium in kingston jamaica to see bob marley and the whalers 1975 oh, wow. and stevie wonder oh, and, and i was i knew almost nothing about bob marley coming into it and stevie wonder was in the middle of that incredible run wow sure yeah that yep that concert bob marley in particular that performance by the way who performed with uh, uh peter tosh Uh, Oh, yeah. And Bunny Whaler, last time they ever performed live together, lost on me at the time. Mm -hmm. Wow. But cool. changed everything. I picked up a copy of Natty Dread as I uh, left the airport and, um, you know... uh, you know i don't know she's almost 50 years later 40 40 some odd years later i'm still a bob marley fanatic a reggae fanatic a music fanatic but yeah. that's the that's mm. the that's the concert that changed everything for me okay It's like i, I just is, fell in love with explains.
2: the whole thing yeah that makes sense i saw the stones in 72 i'm your age i'm 62 so i was 12 and stevie wonder opened for them and it was the it was the exile on main street tour that's right and that's right. it it's superstition had just come out and i'm telling you what man stevie was unbelievable
0: unbelievable and of course the stones were unbelievable too. So that's stuff you never forget. I still got the I still got a booklet. I've never, never forgotten it. And like I said, it's just an indelible mark on, you know, my my life, really. I mean, it was like, you know, my first time like sort of getting a little close up to showbiz. And I was like, wow, this is cool. Yeah. This seems like fun. Maybe this, you know, I mean, that's where maybe where it started to get to my head that maybe that was something, you know, somewhere I could be one day. You had so, to be involved in it somehow. Yeah. 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 I wanted to get closer to that
1: stevie's still great live. I worked on uh, some of those songs of the Key of Life uh tour dates 2 years ago. Gosh, what a band.
0: Yeah, I mean, met uh well, speaking of which, I met a guy named Greg Fillingaines. I don't know if you know who Greg oh, is. Oh, Greg keyboard player. Mm, yeah. sure. Been with Stevie and Michael Jackson and I mean, yep. I mean everybody. Eric Clapton, Clapton John Mayer. Years. I mean, one of the great session guys of all time. He was right out of uh high school in Detroit. It was his first gig with Stevie Wonder. Hmm. Uh, yeah. and um Oh, and we became friends then and i'm i'm still in touch with him he was you know he's probably 62 he was probably 63 now 64 yeah and uh he's been he's been with stevie ever since very cool
1: that's great
3: well we should all have moms like yours yeah yeah she
2: good.
0: was she was uh she was something in that regard
2: well know? my mom took me to see alice cooper there that you was go a, that was a mistake <laughs> five minutes of that show and she said we're out of we're here, out of here. <laughs> people kept passing little little uh cigarettes with no filters to her and stuff and then yeah, she you plus, have plus you go
1: home and now you're into her makeup yeah exactly that, well
2: my, <laughs> the two friends that i took with me they wouldn't speak to me for a few months but uh, okay, anyway sure
1: so doug tell us about your podcast
0: oh gosh well it's not about music uh although uh our first pilot guest was uh Fab Five Freddy, who is the original host of Young TV Raps on MTV. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, we started there. It's um, I co-hosted it with a woman named Jen Cheney, who writes, who's the television critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. And it's sort of a goofy oral history of basic cable. Um, uh, or as I like to say, the uh, 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 about the glorious era when mm-hmm. cable was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we're going to cover everything from MTV to Mad Men. And we're going to talk to mostly, you know, sort of stars and personalities you know who are in the shows but we're also talking to network executives and behind the scenes folks we interviewed a woman named Lisa Napoli um who wrote uh, a book called Up All Night which is about Ted Turner and the birth of CNN but you know we're uh, we we've uh, got Jimmy Kimmel Ben Stiller Brian Cranston uh, Greg Kinnear Chelsea Handler Cindy Crawford Mike Judge from Beavis and Butt-Head uh, Dennis Leary uh, Tom Lennon and Kerry Kenny from Reno 911, Tim Gunn from uh, Project Runway. Uh, you know, I mean, all kinds of people from the sort of eclectic history of basic cable. Look, in a world of two and a half million podcasts, um, uh, it's hard to find a a, a lane, and yeah. uh, so so I say yeah. this might not be the best idea, but we're the only people doing it. Mm-hmm. So
3: yeah. <laughs> there you go. So we'll see we'll see where it takes. Absolutely. Are you tapping into the uh, the people from SCTV? Well, they're not necessarily cable, so it's
0: a very specific kind of thing. So you know, there's there's of course network television, right? And then there was you know sort of premium television, like HBO, Showtime, that kind of stuff. And then there was basic cable, which were all, uh, you know, the kind of channels uh, 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 as uh, made famous in Bruce Springsteen's song, you know, 57 57 channels and nothing's on.
1: So this was like the,
0: the sort of basic thing, which was sort of the, you know, basic when it first came, you know, to being was completely low rent. And it wasn't the networks by a long shot. And then uh, it began to build itself up and 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 gain audience and gain credibility and actually program some decent things. But then it was like, well, but it's not as good as HBO. And then at that moment, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, where it really finally hit its stride, where they were doing programming like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and Rescue right. Me and Damages and all these great, you know, it's always suddenly to feel like these great scripted shows that basic had finally figured out how to do. Then along Mm -hmm. came streaming and stole their lunch. And now, now, oddly, they're, you know, they're going away, you know, which is weird because I, you know, in a world where radio is still here, network television is still here, um, cable's probably going away. Uh, Mm. Not tomorrow, but it's going Mm. away. Yeah. So, the story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It'll, pro- it, it, it'll make a much better book one day. I'm just too lazy yeah, to
2: write it. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. A better book. So, I was going to ask you
0: about storytellers. Were you involved oh, in the- I wasn't. That was a VH1 show, and that right. took place during my Viacom hiatus. You know, I ended up working for Viacom, the company that owns MTV, for most of my career. Okay. But from- uh, and I and I never and I never really worked honestly at VH1 until the very oh, end. Okay. But uh, that's a great show. You know, I know all the folks who did it. This uh, Bill Flanagan, who you should have on the show sometime. By the way, I don't know if you know who Bill mm-hmm. is. Great rock critic, oh, writer, yeah. worked sure. at MTV VH1, and VH1, yeah. and has got great stories, written some great books, um, and really super super knowledgeable. That was, I think, I believe that was sort of Bill's baby. And it was Ray um, da- Ray
2: Davies did the. I mean, Ray Davis, I guess, in England, but that was his thing, right? He. He had a tour called
0: Storyteller. Oh, is that how it started? I think he did the first one. Yeah. Got it. And uh, one of my old MTV buddies, a guy named Van Toffler, uh, who ran MTV for many years, is about to uh, start a King's documentary. And he says he's got both the brothers, which. Are you kidding you know, me? I'm waiting should be, for that. Should be interesting. I always, you know, speaking of, the, speak of the VH1, you know, behind the music. Ah, there
2: you go. The Kinks dolls. Come on now. Yeah. There you with go. The, with the red hunting jackets. Yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not a fan. <laughs> uh, behind, I used to say about behind the
0: music, the best episodes were always the ones with brothers. Because mm-hmm. brothers will say anything about each other. Whereas bandmates, there's a line but if right. you're brothers you can talk <laughs> shit all day so like the oasis one oasis is great guys the yeah. kinks one is great black right. crows. Uh, the black crows one is oh, great oh yeah like yeah. they will just talk shit because they don't care it's like i can say whatever i want it's my brother yeah they're all it. like uh, that that's point. true yeah. yeah those are the best ones always the best ones
1: so i i i, I guess maybe i skipped that did you, what kind of role did you have in the behind the music thing
0: uh, nothing. That was I just oh. uh, just a fan. I was. Oh, I, see. I was okay, just, gotcha. okay. Yeah. That again. That was a VH1 show. I was. Uh, uh, I was. I was just a fan. But I. I always really loved the ones with you know brothers. Always. Oh, yeah. Always. Always the most fireworks. Yeah. Always the it, most I, fireworks.
1: I actually went back and started watching some of those with my my boys not too long ago. Just oh this is a great show I used to watch, and I forgot how much it just became kind of a formula. You know what I mean? It's like the right. first half was build it up, yeah, yeah. and then there was. And some some of the shows I think it was like the Huey Lewis one. it's like they couldn't find anything really bad about Huey oh, Lewis. Exactly. But, and they and you could tell <laughs> even when they tried to it was like Uh, When he got a parking ticket or something,
0: (laughs) too
2: nice of a guy.
1: you know,
0: know, like anything else, you know, as we used to say at MTV in those days, whatever was whatever was worth doing was worth overdoing. And so we we (laughs) overdid that, and VH1 definitely overdid that. But when you find something that works, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. in television, which you know is often a business of repeating itself, you know, you sort of figure out how to try and keep it going, even even if even it is Huey Lewis and he doesn't have a great story. (laughs)
1: Oh, yeah, that's a great story. He just didn't do anything wrong.
0: (laughs) So, anyway... Well, I got to see my share of bad behavior. Well, let's hear about some of that. Well, you know, uh, you know, the VMAs, uh, I remember the, you know, the Nirvana, was it Nirvana Guns and Roses uh, kind of, you know, feud that started backstage happened to happen to be Uh, back there. So was that really, was that legit? Oh, no, that that happened. Okay, (laughs) they were they were just kind of screaming at each other in front of everybody. It was awkward and weird and uncomfortable um i uh, the the night there was that night that um axel went on stage to sing with tom petty and the heartbreakers uh yeah. they did um knocking on heaven's door mm. and so axel walks on and they sing and that was the finale the song end shows over they all walk off if you're in the audience it's stage right i actually was standing in the audience and for some reason i went around stage left which I, I'm still not sure why, because stage right was where everything was. That's where the you know the producers were, and that's where the talent came in and out. And so I came all the way around behind the stage to get to stage right. And by the time I got there it was chaos uh what i had missed was axel walks off stage and vince neal cold cocked them um i guess a dispute over a young lady but uh really i I remember (laughs) i remember everything everybody and everything went crazy you know (laughs) it it wasn't it wasn't exactly like two uh two uh two uh rap groups beefing but uh it was it it was close (laughs) so a lot of that too women will make guys do that sometimes I tell you, yeah yeah yeah
3: yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, uh, you know, then there was like, uh, you know, uh, I remember we, uh, we used to do those rock and jock softball games, which were great. Um, yeah. You know, get you all the celebrities come out and play softball. And mm-hmm. uh, we, the first one we did, we did out here in Los Angeles at USC, Rod Dado Field, uh, which is a f- sort of a famous place on the USC campus. And we booked um, Sam Kinnison. Who yeah. uh, during warmups went out? <laughs> he used to wear those long coats. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Oh, those yeah. big mm-hmm. sweeping yeah. so He walks yeah. out, he opens it up. He's at the outfield wall with his back to, you know. People weren't really there yet, and he just takes a pee on the outfield wall, mm-hmm. and uh, and then he goes <laughs> get back in the locker room, falls asleep on the trainer's table, never woke up, and uh, <laughs> need, needless to say, MTD was not invited back to Rod Dedeaux Field. Oh. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so we, uh, you know, stuff, stuff, stuff happens. <laughs> stuff happens. Showing some class there. Showing some class. <laughs>
1: no matter how hard you work and script things out, it's the unscripted stuff you talk about, right?
0: Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we didn't do a lot of, I mean, mostly on the, the, the the only live, live thing we ever would do is the award shows. And so we were lucky that those mostly came off without a hitch. We had the one famous Andrew Dice Clay incident uh, where he, you know, we, had, you know, we had booked him and, you know, he was at the height of his career with all that filthy stuff. And, we were idiots because yeah. we booked yeah, him and told him he couldn't do that stuff and so he uh he gets on he starts doing clean material he's bombing and he starts doing the filthy stuff and everybody lost their mind i thought i was gonna get fired actually um, <laughs> th- th- thankfully i didn't yeah uh, but oh, uh well. you know that so so whether it was you know whatever we were doing you know spring break you know unplugs you know everything was uh was mostly taped so we got to work around whatever might have gone wrong
3: mm-hmm. yeah yeah
1: well, thank you so much for joining us, Doug. Hey, thanks really for having me. It's really
0: yeah, yeah, Doug. fun to talk to you guys.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's best of luck on your uh, podcast. We're going to be tuning in. What's the name of the podcast today? The again? podcast is called Basic, When Cable Was Cool. Got
0: it.
1: Well, thanks, guys. This is fun. Yeah, thank you. Take thanks, care.
0: All of that. Be good. See you. Great talking Bye-bye. to you, man.